As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I met Chris first in prison uh, around about 1968. And it was through his experiences in prison I got to know about his experiences in Morningstar. He sent the Morningstar, I think, when he was about 14. And what he told me was that it was one of those institutions where it was a pretty tough place, run by Franciscan friars in a beautiful old building. But they were as tough as nuts in terms of their attitude to reforming the kids who are under their care. And they were quite ferocious in the way they went about that. And Chris was one of those kids who was a cheeky kid. He was a charismatic kid. He was a tough kid. He was an in-your-face kid. But he was also a very good-looking kid, which made him quite vulnerable at the age of 14. That's our guest today, Ray Mooney. He's in his 70s now, and for most of his life, He's been a celebrated writer of novels, plays, films, non-fiction books and a university lecturer. Ray's directed 40 theatrical productions. He's written 24 stage plays that have been produced in Australia and one of his plays, The Drover's Boy, was for a time part of the Victorian school syllabus. At a different time in his life though, the only institution he was allowed inside of was the Bluestone College, the College of Knowledge, also known as Pentridge Prison. Ray Mooney was convicted of rape when he was 19 
And the Chris he's talking about so tenderly in that clip is his dear friend, whom he met in Pentridge, Christopher Dale Flannery. Flannery went on to become one of Australia's most prodigious hitmen, earning himself the nickname Mr. Rentakill. The truth around Flannery's disappearance is a matter of conjecture still, and Ray has his own chilling theory, which you'll hear on Thursday, when we release another special episode in which Ray gives us a very different perspective on one of Australia's most notorious criminals. But today, we hear Ray's story, which is extraordinary in its own right, not least because of the honesty and openness he's prepared to bring to it. We began the conversation by asking Ray who he was at the time he committed the offence that landed him in Pentridge. Uh, at the time of the offence, I was a very immature um, 22-year-old um, who was one of those sort of people who thought they were entitled. Um, I'd grown up a little bit in Brunswick, just down the road here. My parents had, um, no, my grandmother owned the Sarah Sands. And as a kid, I'd worked in the Sarah Sands as a young kid. So I'd come through a knockabout scenario and hotels were my life. Even though I'd done physical education at Melbourne Uni, I decided not to be a teacher, but rather to be a publican, even though I was young, quite young. Um, but one of those people who couldn't handle drink. Uh, couldn't socialise unless they were half pissed. And that was our culture. It's changed now. But back in the day, that was your culture. This is before the, the culture of drugs, thank goodness, because I never ever got into drugs, but definitely got into grog. Um, was a lunatic on alcohol um, uh, and finished up uh, committing a bad rape, a really bad one. Tried to get out of it, pleaded not guilty. And, and and I'll mention this because this is something that not a lot of people understand. People always say, oh, well, did you show remorse? Have you shown remorse? And I try and explain to people that, look, it's impossible for someone who's, who's pleaded not guilty but been found guilty and they're going to be sentenced because lawyers always say we're going to appeal this. So no one can show remorse. And, and I, I don't laugh, but I get... I always question people saying, oh, they showed no remorse when they're being sentenced. Usually it's because their lawyers have said, we're going to appeal this. So how can you show remorse if you're still trying to make out you're innocent? But um, none of that worked, of course, and I cop what you'd call your right whack. I was given 12 with a minimum of nine. I knew that um, if you played the game properly, that that would convert down to seven and a half to eight. That's how it was in those days. You do. How did you know that? You're, you're, I, this is a first offence for you. So did a, you know lots of blokes who'd been to jail? Yeah, because I was in the hotel system, and my old man was a bit of a knockabout, and I had a lot of friends who, who were very knowledgeable, and I was as knowledgeable as they were, and had, and I'd bailed people out and things like that before I'd gone to prison. So therefore, you had a bit of a, an advanced reputation, you know. So by the time you've been to university, yeah, and you know lots of blokes around town who've been to jail and all that so yeah. it sounds like you're a bit of a smart ass to be honest totally yeah totally and that's and and i factored that in you know i sort of i made a decision once i was in once the appeals were over and i was been there for about a year i thought okay fine what's the rest of your life what is the rest of your life potentially going to be like can i ask uh, about yeah. your victim about my your yes victim. of course you can who was she did you know her no no it was um it was uh, it was at a, a dance stroke party down at Torquay Stroke Jan Juck. I think you'd call it Jan Juck now, but in those days it was basically Torquay and it was um, down it on the, was, the surf coast. Beautiful place. And not New Year's Eve, but the night before. Yeah, no, I didn't know her beforehand. God, and, how terrifying and for we her. We went parking, and and it was. Oh, you were parking with her. Yeah. Oh. Was, so she, yeah. you'd left the dance together, and she'd agreed to, you know, a bit of kissing and cuddling. Look, I don't want to put any. Um, I'm any obviously not victim blaming. What I'm um, saying is that no, she, I know what you mean. But yeah, that, but that no. as far as she knew, yeah, yeah. you, she obviously thought you were a nice guy, which makes it more Kids, terrifying. Exactly for yeah. her. Yeah. Um, that you'd managed to charm her to a point that she thought you were pretty flash, probably from Melbourne, from the city, yeah. and again, been to uni and all that stuff, and you know, run a pub. And then you've turned on her, is what I'm guessing, because you said yeah. yourself it was a pretty bad rape. Well, I think all rapes are bad. Of course. But this one was definitely a bad one because there was a clash of heads in her. her and the here's 
This has got nothing to do with me trying to make out it was less than what it is because there's nothing worse than that. Mm. But in cases of rape, when you're denying it, mm. what happens is you lie your ass off. The other side, they've got to react some, and by the other side, I'm talking about prosecution, I'm not talking about victim. They will take it to the extreme and the truth is in the middle. Um, and that's basically what it turned out to be. So I said it wasn't me, it wasn't there. So therefore, nothing was questioned in terms of what had happened. I said, I just said, no, I denied it totally. And they nothing. didn't have DNA in those days, so they couldn't just There's, say fundamentally, well, obviously you were because we've got your DNA. Yeah, they just had oh. medical evidence. And, and of course, if you're pleading not guilty, you don't want to make it out to be worse, so you don't challenge it. Nothing's challenged. But anyway, let's say it was as bad as it could be, and I copped my just desserts. Never, ever complained about the length of sentence I was told before I went to court. Uh, in, a, in a very confidential and believable way that if I was prepared to plead guilty, I'd finish up probably nine with a seven. But if I fought it, I could expect anything up to 15 years. Now, normally what happens in a case where you plead your innocence and you're found guilty, they normally, or back in those days, they always did, they add two years onto it because that's what you get if you're found guilty of perjury. Mm. You get two years if you're found guilty of perjury. So oh. anyone who can, anyone, so you, I knew if I was going to go down, the sentence was going to be pretty, but oh, nine years is a big sentence too, but 12 years turned out to be a, an, a really deserving sentence. Totally deserving. But that's sentence. a long time for a young man. Um, and it, it is deserving. Yeah, and, and it will agree, always be the case. It will always be deserving. You know, we often see that people don't get that and then there's people who get more. Oh, Peter Dupas and, got six years every bloody time. Don't even. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah, sickening. Yeah. But, what, um, year was, what year was this? Uh, 68. 68. 68. I want to go back. You said you're an immature 22-year-old, but also yeah. that you Republican, you knocked around with a lot of blokes who'd been in jail. What, what was your attitude about relationships, about women, about sex. You said you're entitled. I'm yeah. just curious about that, like immature and also seeing a lot of blokes at these pubs that were, you know. I'd come through a culture where social status was measured by how you scored each time you were with a female. That's the first thing someone asked you, what just you score? And it was in those days where it was one out of ten. And, and everyone knew exactly what five meant. You know, five meant kissing with no further progression. Everyone knew what seven meant. Seven meant you were nearly there. Ten meant you were there. So that was, it was sort of, it, you wore it as a mark of of, <laughs> of maturity when in yeah. fact it was exactly the opposite. Yeah. But that was the culture. And this is not justifying it. This is explaining it. And, and that's what I wanted you to be very aware of, that I'm just explaining the reality, yeah. not in any way trying to undermine or, or or make out that it was that it wasn't as bad as it was because it was bad. It was it bad, was. but um, in, recently in researching oh. Anita Cobby's murder, uh, I was reading that the the guy who was the leader of the the gang who killed her, John Travers, he was really proud of his reputation as a rapist around his neighbourhood. It was a badge of honour for him. I was just wondering when you when you talk about that system, yeah. one five out of ten, ten out of ten. Was there much consideration to the amount of coercion that had to go into a ten out of ten? Or no, while I mentioned that ten out of ten, rape was looked and frowned upon, and and it was it was oh absolutely, okay. and and to make out it wasn't, and to make out it was part of the culture, and therefore, okay. you, no, okay. rape was totally frowned upon. Where I was getting at was when you went into Pentridge. What's the pecking order in there when you're a sex yeah, offender yeah. at that time, when you were a well, rapist? I should say rapist. It's, I'm, I'm balking at the word. No, rapist is I the word. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the word. Yeah, I, buy, I, I sometimes try and tippy-toe around I it. I'm glad you don't. And, and yeah. you lead, I should follow your lead. Mm. So, yeah, when you're a young man yeah. and, and you show up in Pentridge, what was the reception? Well, look, this is a really – it's not a what you call a good question, but for me it's a terrific question because the media have – and I say the media because they're the ones who do formulate a lot of policy, especially in terms of social awareness. Yeah. We, we get our, we often follow what we read in the media in terms of how we morally expect to behave and what have you. There's, there's this, 
and it was total nonsense in my day that if you went to jail for rape, then you were at the bottom of the pecking order or you were in trouble. There was no such thing. All the top crims, and by top I mean the well-known crims, had mainly been convicted or charged with rape themselves. Yeah. You know, you look around Australia, the Nettie Smiths, like they've all at some sense, Chopper was charged. I like noticed it, it, that. You know, like yeah, I noticed most... Most people, when you research them, have yeah, a rape conviction. Oh, so Chris, Chris Flannery, who we're talking about, Laurie Prendergast. I could go and name 20 people who who would be knowledgeable, who would be known to you. Craig Renaud. Yeah. And they were never discriminated against. That's not to say that in terms of rock spider or in terms of pedophilia, yeah. you are totally discriminated against because those same people have got kids themselves. And also and because I think even though they historically haven't spoken about it much now we know so many inmates were sexually abused as children so i think mm. that's probably got a lot to do with the the attitude in prison to rock spiders look surely. the the attitude to rock spiders is sort of it's horrific and it's perpetrated at every level but it's been a media invention that oh don't drop the soap in the shells blah 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 well, what total farce you know like absolute complete farce i never saw that i never saw anyone ever discriminate against for the crime of rape in prison it had nothing your status in prison had to do with your personality it had to do with how you behave when you were arrested it had to do with whether or not you'd given anyone else up during proceedings and then it had to do with your background you know, who, who were your parents and who were your father and who were, the pe- who were all the other people you know? Have you come through the boys' homes, the girls' homes? Um, who, are, who are the people who will vouch for you? Yeah. That's what reputation was about. Of course, about. So and you then, know when you get in there. Absolutely. And the last thing, and this is more important than all the things I mentioned, how you could fight. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't matter what you'd done if you could fight. Who's ever going to call Nettie Smith a dog for giving police up? Not one person in the world because even at his... Even when he was old, he'd still be capable of flogging anyone. <laughs> no one said a thing to his face ever. So what happened when you got into Pentridge, who did you know? I mean, you ended up negotiating on behalf of prisoners in Pentridge. So you ended up yeah. a very trusted person there in the prison by the other inmates. How did it start? It started by when I was in the remand yard bailing out a person I promised I'd bail out if I was given bail. I was in the remand yard and for three months before I was given bail. And I had promised a guy that if I got out, I'd bail him out. And I did bail him out. And very few people, when they promise those things, follow through. But I knew the potential that I was going to go back to prison. I wasn't stupid. I knew I'd be going back. So it was an investment. then I'd had a couple of um, challenges, so to speak, and whether or not you back away depends upon how other people look at you. And then I was able to help a lot of people who needed help, and therefore I probably how? had financially or a number. Well, the the first person I really helped was Chris Flannery. This is how I got to know him. Christopher Dale Flannery. We it's always like to use the full title, if you don't mind. Christopher Dale, sorry. <laughs> Mr. Rentakill. Mr. Rentakill. Famously. Mr. Have you done a, a show on him yet? Look, we haven't done a specific show on him, but right. of course he pops Being up mentioned. a lot. And I have to say this is, I don't know how to say it any other way, he's a favourite of mine. He's a fascinating character. I, can't, I wish I could remember which copper it was who came home one day and his wife said, oh, someone came to visit you. It's a lovely fellow, Christopher. Christopher Flannery, and he came in and had a coffee, and he said he'll catch up with you another Brian time. Brian Murphy. Brian Murphy, oh, the yes. skull. That's yeah. it. Sorry, that's yes. who it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So this is what I mean. Yeah. These sorts of anecdotes pop up all the time. A lot. But it's hard to find <laughs> one cohesive narrative about Christopher Dale Flannery, <laughs> except yours. Well, so um, we've been waiting for you. I first met him in 1968, which was the first year I went in. He was in. He was. He had been sentenced to seven with a four with a fellow called Laurie Prendergast. They were both young at the time, 18 at the time. Uh, They were both in B Division. I was in A Division. Now, anyone who knows anything about Pentridge is that it's delineated along the lines of 
um, whether you're a first timer, whether you're a heavy crim, or whether you're, in other words, whether you're a boob head, a heavy crim, or you're a square head, a newcomer. And I was in the category of being a square head. So I was sentenced to A division and given a very good job at the time. I was the, uh, what was called a writer, which is basically a secretary. Uh, in a place called Amenities that did all the, pro the prisoners' hobby material and arranged all the entertainment and sport. So I had a brilliant job. So is that like one of the best jobs you could it have? It was the best job. And the governor at the time, Grinley, uh, may, had given it to me right from the beginning against the whole queue of people Ooh. who expected to get it. Is that because so, you've been to uni? Yes. It was because I'd done phys ed. Oh. And and I had a bit of a reputation as a sports person. Okay, yeah. So, and he was and Grinley was a sports. His son was a champion cyclist. What was your sports um like talent specialty? Discipline? I guess. Oh, it's yes. Not <laughs> what was my discipline? If you're an athlete, I, I did what was called the decathlon. Oh, so I, everything I was across them all, and I'd won a few school kid champion schoolboy things and all that and whatever. Did you get a bit of attention for that as a as a teenage boy, young man? Because you were good at sport. Because we know that being good at sport in Australia is. You know, deal. it's a big it, deal. It, it, here's how much attention it got me. When they tried to make that a big deal before the judge, the judge said, well, you should have known bloody better. Yeah. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. He's bloody spot on. Yeah. He's spot on. You know. He just thought you were a bit of a waker, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. But, but, but the, okay, uh, the so governor the first time I met was some, into it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been given this really good job. Okay. So I'm in A Division. I'm looking after the A Division football team. And, and, and within Pentridge, sport's a big deal. There were six football teams and they were full-on ferocious, absolutely. We, we played on the weekends. No, we're dead set full-on. You played against uh, outside, other, didn't you? We played against outside teams, yeah. mainly the 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 VFL teams yeah. at the time, Which the seconds. Which was rough. No, not their first, but their seconds. Seconds, yeah. Yeah, we weren't that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either, but it was full-on ferocious. How terrifying. It, oh Fair we've got Pentridge this weekend. <laughs> and VF, if, VFL was in full-on, like, oh, back in the If A you finish up then. going into that, Great. I've written about Anyway, um, and we were, A Division was classed as the sucks and dogs. You know, we're the first time as the squareheads. Yeah. And we had all the lifers in A Division and all the goody two shoes. Mm -hmm. And I used to hate the, you know, the fact that, you know, not only would we get flogged at every, but they'd punch the shit out of us. You know, every, they just, and they would, all the, all the guys would sort of gang up and punch us. And I had a couple of fights. In my first game, in, in my first ever game, and I didn't know who the guy I was. I, one guy called me. He said, "What did he say?" He said, oh, "I fuck your mother," and he's come running at me. And I fluked him and, and just hit him. And they've carted him off the hospital. And I don't realise at the time he's one of the heavies. I had no idea who he is. This is like my first ever football game ever. Anyway, so it was a bit hard for us to sort of survive because they were all out to sort of even up and all that shit. So I said, "Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recruit." all the up-and-comers because Pentridge was run by the, the old clique and the old clique were these people who were smooth talkers with the screws and they were right in with them. And, and I haven't come in with that attitude. I've come in with a young attitude um, and there's a whole clique of people coming up who are anti this old guard of crims who run the place. You know, they're totally running the place. They've got every rort going because they've been there for years and they're all past their use-by date, but they think they're still in charge. So I was able to get through a little bit of sort of um, smooth... I, I, I worked on the assumption, look, I'll get you into education, come down, because I was working with the teachers at the time doing courses. I said, come down here and we'll get you into education. So I got Laurie Prendergast down, Chris Flannery, Jimmy Pappas, uh, Tommy Donald. Uh, these are all, uh, Patty Chamings, these are all the heavy up-and-coming crims. Young, fit. And, and Bobby Barrett, we never got touched. We were the ones who flogged them, you know. <laughs> we, we just turned the table. They saw the shift. Because all of a sudden we weren't the and we won the grand final that year. We won the grand final the year after, and no one ever punched the shit out of us. No one, never again. Of course, Pentridge Prison wasn't all about grand final glory. After the break, our guest Ray Mooney takes us into the dreaded H division. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So you're not going to get me then, Kathy? Worth doing any more time over you, Maggie. Oh, Keithy, you get off on self-defence. All you got to do is kill me, present me psychiatric records to the court. There's not a jury in the land that will convict you. <laughs> you're fucking sick, Reed. You're insane. Beethoven had his critics too, Keith. See if you can name three of them. That's right, you can't. What, you do yourself a favour and neck up your country, you're a parrot. Fucking blowfly. Oh, Keith, you know, I always thought I was a good bloke. <laughs> What'd you ever do that was good? Well, I bashed you. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? It was good for a bit of a giggle anyway. Hey, Keithy? Oh, come on, Keith. You should thank me. You got a head that needs regular panel beating. That was, of course, the classic Keithy's done himself a mischief scene from the movie Chopper. Although the scene depicts a fictional event, it was shot in the very real H Division building, the building that housed Chopper Reed for part of his Pentridge imprisonment. H Division was possibly the most notorious block of any Australian prison. To most of us, it's chilling because we think of it as a place full of frightening, violent men without redeeming qualities. That's the way it's always been presented to us on the outside. But Ray Mooney took his first-hand experience of the place and wrote a book called The Ethics of Evil, Stories of H Division which doesn't paint a rosier picture of H Division, but it does reveal the brutality of the place from the prisoner's perspective. We have a full list of Ray's books and other works in the show notes and on our Facebook page, but for now we'll pick up the conversation with Ray explaining the basic workings of H Division to us. You had to quick march, had to salute, had to wear a hat. You were never allowed to look up. Had to look down at the ground, find your spot, break rocks all during the in the in the day if you're in the labour yards, and, and give your name all the time and what have you. And then if you come out fighting every day, which a few people did, they had a way of getting the psychiatrist to certify you to J Ward our rat. And it was like one flew out of the cooker's nest. Your prison sentence stopped when you're in J Ward our rat. Your sentence doesn't go on. Oh, no. They had, they had it over you. There's no way you could have defeated them. No way in the world. I just read a book about J Division, actually, yeah. the history of it. It was oh, bloody it's, it's one of the, unbelievable. It's a museum now, by the way. So yes. Who... And it's, is it the real one? Because they've got two. And sometimes they don't show you the real one. H Division, why did you go there? Like, who went there? It's the punishment section of Pentridge, and it was there to uh, people who are under protection, extreme protection, were put down there. 
Like there was a guy down there when I was there who had been who had been up in B division, and every night the screws were letting him out of his cell, so he could use the woodwork room to turn these battens. And the moment the crims found out, they had to put him in haste division to save his life. So he's making battens for the screws. A crim. A crim was making the battens. Absolutely for the, yeah, yeah, in B it. division. Yeah. <laughs> What did you go to H Division for? I went there because I was a spokesperson for prisoners during a riot during a time where the the union had outlawed a prisoner's representative committee. When I first went to prison, Grinley, who was the governor, who I feel has been very underestimated in, in penology, he was a genuine reformist governor. Uh, you won't hear many bad words from me against him, except that he oversaw haste division. But we had a few talks and he said, look, I can't do anything about it. He said, the screws will all jack up if I do anything about haste division. I understood that. Anyway, um, there was a prisoner's representative committee, which meant that two prisoners from each of the six divisions would meet once a month with him. And, there, and we'd have an agenda and discuss all the things that needed to be discussing. And it was his way of finding out how the prison was working, whether or not we had complaints. <laughs> Did we have complaints, God? Like, <laughs> it was just a, a whinge sort of uh, whinge fest. But the other screws, the ball and chain screws, were really crook on the fact that Grinley allowed this. He thought it gave us too much of a, a voice. And I understood, I totally understand that. If you're in their camp, of course, that's how you would see that. So... We're, and we're talking a period of three to four years where there were ongoing rights, mainly about the brutality in the H Division. These now, screws you're talking about, were these the uh, guys who'd been World War II veterans? Yeah, most of them. Yeah. Most of them. Uh, and it was along, screws were demarcated along the lines of Navy versus Army, of Catholic versus President, of yeah. Irish versus English. Like they were Masons really demarcated. And, were they Masons and stuff? Masons and, and the Catholics, Catholics and the Freemasons. Yeah. Totally. Like and, the coppers you know, in those days, Catholics yeah. and Freemasons. Oh, but you find that everywhere, I think. You will find that in in, yeah. in just about everywhere. But no, definitely military. Military was a big, big yeah. deal. And this and the people they picked in Hate Division, they picked for their attitude and their size. Yeah. Now we we just need to look at there's different time periods. Yeah. When it first started in the early six in the early fifties, uh, because of the escape of a fellow called Bill O'Mealy. Uh, it was a ferocious place, way up until probably 70, 1970, when there were prison riots about the brutality in Hates Division. Mm. And simultaneously, and this is where a lot of people don't give due respect, Chris Flannery's brother, Eddie Flannery, was a lawyer oh. who was also running the Council of Civil Liberties. And because he knew how Chris had been treated in Hates Division, he had drawn an amazing amount of media attention to what happened in Hates Division. It's a really underrated area. So there was a campaign outside, and, and that campaign outside was putting pressure upon the leaders inside Pentridge to do something also. And that's when Chris decided that he and his mates would go down to Hates Division and destroy the place. So six of them decided that they would all get themselves sent down and take the system on. Unfortunately, what happened was that Chris went down and by abusing one of the, the chief in the C Division, which is where he was at the time, and the others, through whatever circumstances, waited a week before they came down. Um, but he was down there carrying on and trying to get all the prisoners to riot and, and join him, which they wouldn't do. Which you, you got, but uh, but no, like uh, there is uh, no blame whatsoever on them. If you'd been in Hayes Division, you know it, it was you got the shit punched out of you. No, like I, I've never ever blamed anyone for anything they ever did or didn't do in Hayes Division. You had to be there to know how bad it was. Anyway, they have a royal commission because the whole place blows up. And the Royal Commission is a total whitewash, and we know it's a whitewash because they're not accepting evidence. And everyone kept on saying, oh, Chris Flannery uh, refused to give evidence at the inquiry. He gave evidence. So they, all, they all gave evidence. And before the inquiry comes out, there's more rights because we think it's going to be a whitewash. And all the divisions except A Division have gone on strike, and I'm in A Division. 
Because Ada Vision's newbies, so they the, they don't know. We're the goody two shoes. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. still the goody two shoes, despite the fact that we've had prisoners down there in and out. So Archie Butley has been taken uh, through through the centre of the prison, and and he'd been beaten severely down there, really badly beaten. You know, he's lucky to have survived that one. And, and so they've got to they rush him through the actual centre to get him out. So all the prisoners see it. So all the prisoners are on edge, and 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 the place is ready to erupt, and. We always used to have meetings in A Division to talk things through. Like, you know, there, there were there were 150 prisoners in A Division, but there were about 50 or 60 who would always meet to talk things things through. Uh, you'd never get everyone involved, no matter what you did. And there was they there were people talking, oh, we should back up the rest of the prisons and go and strike with them. If they know that we're going to back them up, then they know that they're on to potentially being able to do something. A Division had never been on strike. The governor, Grinley, had threatened, and by the way, Grinley's on holidays at this stage. Oh, wow. Governor Vodden is in charge. The governor threatened, okay, you lose all your night classes if you go on strike. So that was a big, big deal. A division had night classes no other division had. We had incredible privileges. So we, um, the, the prison officers' union have forced Grinley to disband the prisoner's representative committee because he thought we had too big a voice. He's disbanded it. So no one's got the right to talk on behalf of any other person in, in prison. That was the deal. So when the riots are potentially going to happen, the screws come to me or the, the, the screw is in charge of A Division, who was a, a relieving uh, chief, said, look, will you go and talk to the prisoners, Ray? And I said, no, no way. It's, you can't. He said, no, no, I'm giving you permission to go and talk to them. Now, I knew the subtext was, Ray, go and talk them out of wanting to go and strike. I knew that. Um, so I get them all together and try, and I try and suss out where they're at. And it's 50-50. 50 want to go on strike, 50% don't. All the lifers don't want it. They've got to live there for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know, and I understand that. They said, you make the decision for us. I said, right, we're on strike. Oh, my God. <laughs> that night. Oh, my God. <laughs> Straight down the Hays Division. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. While the Jenkinson inquiry was on, most of the violence had gone out of Hays Division. Plus, the prisoners who were down there had destroyed the place. They, they'd rioted and they'd bashed the walls down in between the, the, the labour yard walls. And, and I had always big-mouthed and said, look, there's no way in the world I'd be breaking rocks if I went down the hate sufficient, you know, and, and bragging about it years early. Always thinking I'm never going to go anywhere near hate sufficient. Of course, now I'm down in hate sufficient. So the first morning... They put me in the labour yards and say, right, okay, see that? Oh, I have to do all the standard attention, give your name to the guy up there and all this crap. And there's two screws who come in. And usually they don't come, there's not two screws, there's only the guy up there. He says, right, pick up the uh, big hammer and you're going to start to break rocks. What are you literally breaking rocks for? I mean, punishment. Yeah, but like, yeah. what? What? Do you, what does well, it... we used to joke that we're, we're. Where do the rocks go? We're, re, we're relining Sydney Road, the bloody. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, just Sydney. Yeah, like, where like, does all the broken rock the, go? The blue stones. The, I don't know. Where like, does it go? A... Oh, probably the gardens of the bloody screws. No, no, it, it went to landfill. You know, it went into sort of. Um, so just, oh, and, and it was, you know, but bluestone chips go into roadfill. It went into oh, roadfill yeah. to yeah. potholes, fix potholes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I had worked this. I had always known that the weakness of Hate's division wasn't in the brutality that was happening. I knew it was in the legality that underpinned it. And I law books were illegal. You weren't allowed to have law books when I was there. You just weren't allowed to have them. But I was doing a degree in social science. So I was able to legally get in law books as part of my course and the teachers had to sort of keep them in their office and all that shit, but I had access to them. And I knew how it all worked and I'd read all the rules and regulations. I'd read the Social Welfare Act, just I'd read them all and, and, and could read them like a lawyer could read them. I said, look, I said, um, I, I want you to know I'm not, I'm not refusing to, buy, to obey a lawful order I'm refusing to obey an unlawful order of me having to break rocks. However, if you're prepared to give me goggles that protect my eyes and, oh, I went, yeah. and shin guards for my knees and <laughs> gloves, you know, and they've just looked, you know. So anyway, um, I get charged and flogged and two guys behind you, they just flog the shit out of you. They did that for probably two weeks. Every like every night, every I've still night. Got scarred kidneys, like I'm rocking the bloody shit. That, that's how. But I never broke rock, so I can always hold my head up and say I'm one of the very few people ever yeah. that got through the system without refusing to break rocks. But 
I also wasn't there in the days when they would have put you off if that's how you had have acted. And I know that. But at least I can hold my what head What do you mean put say, you off? Oh, uh, you, there were a few people who were found that they were, couldn't cope and they'd hung themselves. Oh. There, there were, and there were a lot of people who ended up being vegetated. Yeah. You know, from the like, from the extreme bashing oh, and that, it, it, the floggings were terrible. They were really like when you say flogging, yeah. like because I think cat and nine tails. But what like what are we talking? Floggings are basically screws with pig killers, and they're extra long battens. And they were and and if you were told when you first went there, you were stripped off naked, and you were forced to march around the the small cell block area, which still exists if you go in and see one of the because the, the, they're opening the Haste Division tours. I think yeah, they've opened them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that area where they used to, there'd be four screws, one on each corner, and they would flog the shit out of you, and that'd go for probably half an hour, no, twenty minutes at the most, I'd say, but that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. a long time. Amazing long time. And and you were kicked and punched, and no matter what it was, and then they'd come into the, then you'd have to break rocks for a month in the labour yards before you could apply for permission to go into what was called the industry yards where you'd be with other prisoners, not allowed to talk, but you'd be making things like uh, coir brooms or uh, electrical components. Um, so it, it, the, the floggings always dropped off after two weeks because there were new people coming in all the time. So they had to drop off simply because of the way it worked. So if you Just were there time for time restraints, haven't got time to flog everyone. No, because there'd be seven people each week in and out, seven going out, seven coming in. So they're the ones who would have copped it. The guys were there. There were Stan Taylor spent seven years in hate sufficient. Bill O'Mealy and and people forget they. Everyone asked me why did he blow up Brussels? Went, oh right, well it's not hard to work out. They bragged about how they hung him out the fifth floor of Russell Street by his feet and he shit himself. They bragged about that. That was the way that you were treated. If you want to be smart and, and you you want to show us how tough you are, we'll show you how tough we are. You get um, so used to one line. Exactly. And you can look through it, can't you? And you can Yeah, sort of put now it you can go, oh, yeah. Jesus, wow. Yeah. Once you add that and then you detail look at that, all, you see it yeah. very differently, don't you? You can yeah. see a whole thing so differently. They don't want to factor in very important determinants that might have like, you know, that thing of... It's like, the boys' homes. I'm really... Well, the boys' homes plus the the fifth floor at Russell Street, you know, like there, there were a lot of people and hung that was out. Where Tell they, us about the fifth yeah. floor, floor at Russell Street. Well, I don't know arm, about this. Well, that was the armed robbery squad who were famous ah. for saying if someone didn't want to talk, well, we'll show you how to talk. We show you the lasso concept of talking. So we just lasso your legs and throw you out. And no, everyone shits themselves. Like it doesn't matter how tough you are. I'm curious to know about, so the brutality you experienced in Pentridge, you saw other people experienced, you, you know what happens how did that make you reflect then on why you went to prison for the rape like how how has that changed you and also you're married you've got kids yeah look it, it um i very quickly analyzed where i was at and where i wanted to go and i knew that there'd come a time if i survived pentridge that i'd be released and I wanted to be released on my own terms. So very, very quickly, once my appeal was over, I acknowledged to anyone, firstly my parents, and and then because they didn't, because I said I didn't do it, you know. Uh, and then I acknowledged to people, no, no, I was guilty. Uh, How and was that? Let, let's let, like not brush over that. Mm, yeah. That's How, massive. You know, if you've you've put so much energy into saying to your parents, I wasn't there, I wasn't yeah, there. Yeah, and they believe. And they've they've, they've believed oh, it because they want to. I, don't think they believed it, but really, well, you kind of got to believe well, both it. Though, of them. We're talking you? about two but individuals. Put this way, they they never un, they never sort of. Um, I would think that uh, no, they would have known. I would have think, but it was important to sort of tell them the truth. So how was that when you mm. you know fronted them and said, "I've got to tell you something." I did. It wasn't I did do like it. that, actually. It was never. I've got to tell you something. It was over a period of you know, like probably a year or so. Like um, it was because you only had a visit once a month, and my mum never missed a visit ever, ever in the entire time I was there. Um, and it, it was just a way of saying, well, without you know that you are guilty, and and don't worry, I, I'm in my right place. I deserve to be here. It wasn't 
I confess stuff. It Isn't was, that fascinating? Because it's, it's hard to imagine. How do yeah, you say, you know, know. The, a sentence over the period over eighteen months? I'm guilty of this rape, mum. But I understand what you're saying. It's in the way you just gently change okay. language. Here's what was important to me. I did not want her to be in a position of defending me, which she would probably have had to have been in that position. I, that was the reason why I wanted that change. I wanted her to be able to not have to have that on her all the time defending me. And the moment I realised that, we were fine. Nothing else had to be said. You didn't sort of have to say anything. You just understood that. And she's a, and, uh, she a very smart person, you know, a very creative and smart person. And, th and that was good because then I said, okay, not a problem in the world. So you don't have to live this lie of – see, most guys inside, not most, but a lot of them – made out they were innocent and and it was a big deal that you were oh no the police framed me and blah 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 and i never believed most of it some of it i did but most of it i didn't believe and i thought that's sad because of the situation that you're in it puts you in the situation and i didn't want to play that game plus i wanted to be able to come out on my own terms mm -hmm. and uh and the other thing was i didn't want to waste one day in prison so i probably did more than most people you know i did a lot of study weren't you uh, the first bloke to ever begin and complete a degree in jail yeah, in pentridge yeah in in prison in prison in australia in, in australia yeah 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 but that's no big deal oh well i think it is uh, because i only well the reason i think it is is because you set a precedent that enabled yeah. other blokes to do yeah. it and, and other women to do it and that's important no you're right and i did and i set it up because it, it was it took me a, it was hard to do yeah. there was no one in the world that would this is the world yeah. that would let prisoners in Australia do degrees by correspondence. Yeah. University of London had correspondence courses for degrees, but back in 1968, they were getting inundated with people who had enrolled from Pakistan and were allowed entry into the country. So they were trying to get out of degrees. So I go in the time where they're not letting anyone from here. So I, I fought for one and a half years to be able to do a degree from the University of London. And they said, look, your qualifications aren't good enough, despite the fact that I'd had a university diploma. They said, oh, look, if you study uh, British constitution at the O level, and pass it, we'll consider it. So I did it for a year and passed it. And then they said, okay, because they could, this is an ongoing fight. And they said, okay, uh, we'll let you enroll in a law degree. That's the only course available. I said, great, that's exactly what, what I want to do. They said, well, this, this is taking months, you know, let us come back, it takes months. They said, well, we've worked, um, first of all, you have to be approved by one of the four courts of London, which was, um, and, and the qualification to be accepted by a court law, that they, they're called courts, C-O-U-R-T-S, they're almost like houses that look after graduates. Uh, one of the um, qualifications is your character. So you're going to have a bit of trouble there. Now, simultaneously, this is simultaneously, I'm working with the University of South Africa and the school teachers are letting me write all these letters all the time. And uh, because in, in Pentridge, the school teachers were all primary teachers. They were all primary teachers who oversaw correspondence courses above and beyond primary. So I'm writing to the University of South Africa and they don't want to open the doors either. And, I, and they said, oh, look, we'll let you study an arts degree, but you have to study the language Afrikaans. I said, great. I've always wanted to study Afrikaans, you know. <laughs> Who hasn't? Oh. It's the language of love. So anyway, <laughs> this is true. Three months later, they come back and they said, oh, okay, we've had a, a meeting. Yep, not a problem. You can do it if you study Afrikaans, but your exams have to be held in Canberra. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> they got me every time. Just a lot but, of barriers, right? But, but it didn't matter because this was what makes you stronger. Yeah. Simultaneously, I'd enrolled in a diploma in social um, science from WAIT. Now, that's a two-year course. Then I'd done that and completed it. Then the next year they relegated it to associateship, so I did another year. Then they relegated up to a degree status. So I finished up, you know, doing even... You got a degree. I finished up with a degree. And simultaneously I was doing a degree with them in accounting. So I did two years of an accounting degree. And, and I'd arranged for La Trobe University to come out and tutor uh, philosophy courses, which they did. You got out of jail and you've got a family and you got married and I'm just um, interested to know 
Like, what was the process for, I guess, just being real with your family? Because I just find your story really fascinating and important to hear because it's about that opportunity to go, yeah, I did a really fucking awful thing. I took my whack and this is how, you know, you've lived your life. Look, because um, I had a certain profile when I came out, I had done things like, uh, the, the Don Lane show, Peter uh, uh, Peter Couchman show. I'd done the Neil Mitchell ones. I'd done Darren Hange. I'd done uh, quite a lot of news events, and I'd done a lot of articles and talked about it on radio. And 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 that I, I had sort of a, a profile, so there's no problem. So no one, nothing was hidden. And because I, I've I was a teacher after you know I taught it lectured in professional writing for 30 years and I always made a point of letting people who I work with know my past history always I'd find ways of letting them know in fact I had things that I'd written that that talked about it and so I'd make certain they read it or talked about it so that no one ever was blindsided and they had the opportunity of not of choosing not to work with me if they didn't want it or they had the opportunity of of um of having nothing to do with me or whatever. So I never had a problem. It's not as if no one knew. So if anything needed to be discussed and talked about, I just talked about it in a, in a way that tried to say, okay, really bad. Can people change? I believe they can. And I'll demonstrate to you how I believe they can. And I have no, I can easily demonstrate how people change. Like, first of all, you've got to accept that it's wrong and then you've got to modify your behaviour. And having modified it, you've got to start to believe that the modification is the right way to go. Mm. Now, if you've done that, then you know that that's never going to happen again. And you'll make certain it doesn't happen again. And even if it's your DNA, but you're capable of modifying yourself, you won't do it again. You know, and I worked in education, which is premised upon the concept that people can change. Because if you can't change, you can't learn. Thank you to our guest, Ray Mooney. Don't forget there's a full bibliography of Ray's work in the show notes and on our Facebook page. And on Thursday, we'll be back with a special episode in which Ray tells us about his friend, Christopher Dale Flannery. It's a very different perspective of the man they called Mr. Rentakill. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.